1: Welcome back. Uh, We're talking about the new modeling that just came out in the last hour. We're talking about testing. We got a tip yesterday that the province is going to increase its testing strategy. Does that mean that they are going to give out some of those thousands and thousands of tests that are just sitting around? Uh, and we're talking about the new travel rules, which don't make a lot of sense to people and have given a lot of people a really bad experience being stuck in quarantine hotels with no food, no baby formula. And then after they get a negative test, being un able to reach the people that are supposed to clear them to go home. So all of that. The numbers to call four one six three six zero zero seven forty toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. I'm talking to Ashley Nunes who had an article in the Globe and Mail uh, with his view of the new travel restrictions, and Dr. Prabhat Jha, epidemiologist and faculty member at the Dalla Lana School of Public Health at the U of T. And Dr. Jha, first of all, it seems to be that the Omicron variant is more contagious, but it's looking like it's less virulent. Um, do you put a lot of stock in that preliminary finding, and what do you think?
2: I think we have to remember what Yogi Berra said. You know, he said you can observe a lot by watching. And we really just need more evidence. Uh, there are some suggestions that um, the uh, Omicron variant seems to lead to more mild cases. These are case reports coming out of South Africa. But that very much depends on the population. I and mean, if that was a lot of unvaccinated or younger people, It might very well be different here. So we need uh, patiently another week or two of observations and studies from the UK and other places that have enough Omicron cases that they'll be able to determine whether it's leading to um, serious illness as well as being reasonably easily transmitted. Um, I think the main strategy, though, is we have to keep our focus on what is ahead of us, which is DELTA. Delta is dominating in the US, and again, driven by unvaccinated populations. Here, Delta is also um, very much driven by unvaccinated uh, populations. And you have to remember even this scenario that people say, oh, well, I know people who've been vaccinated but got infected. If you walk backwards, uh, or if you look carefully at most of those, says in fact, vaccinated people get infected by contact with unvaccinated. So we still have to keep the goal on re- really reducing the numbers of unvaccinated. That's equally true in Ontario as it is in the U.S. and globally. The Omicron arose because of large percentages of unvaccinated populations in in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, and those are variant factories. So the right way out of this is to vaccinate and to test intelligently.
1: Oh, well we'll get to the testing intelligently. I mean, you you've been talking about how much more time we need to really know what's what, but yeah. it's that the timing isn't good because this is the holiday season when people are getting together. So, Dr. Job, would it be a good idea if people just got those testing kits and say if you were going to have 10 people over, have them take a test before they come?
2: A matter of being prudent and saying, well, family gatherings among those that you know have been vaccinated probably are okay. Do you need to get everyone tested there? No. But if you're planning to throw a rager where you're going to get a lot of kids showing up and teenagers or young adults, then maybe testing is a good idea. But I I really think we need public health guidance to advise on the numbers of people that are permitted, because people do listen to those government signals. And Looking forward to what the government announces for uh, any capacity limits, for example, that they suggest.
1: Uh, Ashley Nunes, do you have a view of that?
3: Well, I would say that having landed in Toronto over the weekend, you know, being shuffled into a large hall with large groups of individuals certainly made me very nervous. Um, And I'm curious as to what the government, uh, whether the government will follow its own lead if it places restrictions on how many people can gather in one particular space. I I don't know about you but I'm not terribly thrilled about uh, you know hanging out with hundreds of people in you know in the main terminal at Pearson so
1: uh, yeah, <laughs> like, as, as I was saying in a previous segment, I think uh, that my husband and I uh, hit a very sweet spot. We we had a trip to New York about three weeks ago, and noth- everything was fine, and nothing was crowded, uh, unlike what we experienced in the summer. So, um, yeah, um, some, some things, as I said, don't seem to make sense. Let's hear from Trevor in Milton. Hi, Trevor. Hi there. Go ahead. You're on the air. Trevor? Okay. Let's go to Mike in Woodbridge. Hello, Mike. Hi, Libby. How are you doing today? Fine. How are you? Great. Just great. Just have a general question regarding
4: travel from Toronto to the U.S. Uh, Obviously, a lot of confusion over the kinds of tests you need. Uh, Leaving Toronto to go to the U.S., U.S. has introduced the test 24 hours ahead of
1: travel yeah it's just it, an antigen that, test though okay antigen w- what about
3: the test do you need one to get on the plane like a pcr test
1: uh no you just need the antigen test but within okay. 24 hours okay so
4: that'll suffice
1: both getting no at the airport and getting into
4: the plane type
1: of thing. right it just it's not you won't get back in the country with that
4: No, okay, so back in the country, we go back to the PCR test. Right. Correct, wonderful, wonderful.
1: Okay. Appreciate
4: the clarification, thanks Libby.
1: Thanks, okay, (laughs) that was an easy question. Most of them are a little more difficult. Uh, Dr. what? I mean, we've seen that there are some areas where there are restrictions that have been imposed in terms of gatherings, no more than 10 people inside, and uh, I forget the number outside. None of these areas are in the GTA. But, you know, there's a thought that maybe more restrictions have to be introduced. What do you think of that?
2: I think that's absolutely prudent. Um, remember, what we, the tools that we have, we have to use well. And we know that coming into Christmas, where you get more crowding indoors, that these kind of signals do help. So I think discouraging travel uh, is, a, is a good signal for the government to uh, communicate currently. Uh, discouraging large gatherings indoors, particularly without masks, is a good signal. But that can't be really enabled until we get a more systematic approach to testing and rapid testing. So I'm not sure why the delay, I would like to see it before Christmas. The federal or the provincial governments announce something, again, like every Canadian household will have access to X number of tests and uh, guidelines on how to use them. And I think people would use those uh, carefully and intelligently um, for the most part. And that would decrease the number of cases that are occurring. Remember, when you have a test... People think, oh, you, you know, you just would abuse it. But it also, there's a sense of responsibility with it. You think, okay, I'm taking the test. If I'm positive, I've got a moral obligation to make sure that I report it to my doctor or report it to the health clinic and I isolate. And I think most Canadians would follow those. We don't want to infect others. He's a super spreader in his own right. I think most Canadians would find that abhorrible. Um, and so, and given the challenges of our public health system, I trust Canadians to do the right thing, particularly. So get the kits out to homes, and we'll use them wisely.
1: Well, I I think that uh, most people would, but then you know, as we see with uh, unvaccinated populations, they can wreck it for everybody else. Uh, we've got Trevor back. Hi, Trevor.
5: Hi there. Go hey, ahead. I got cut off earlier. Go ahead. Um,
2: yeah, I just wanted to make a comment about the travel, like the through the states. But I mean, I just want to also make a comment on what um what you just mentioned like vaccinated people unvaccinated people unvaccinated myself um and we say that unvaccinated people are causing the vaccinated people to get sick but like the numbers are about 50 50 mm-hmm. so, no
1: I'm, they're not uh, they're not nah, yeah, and you have to the, there's and it's uh, you have to look at uh the bottom number where 80 percent of the population is um vaccinated so the breakthrough cases will, will, you know, the the population of vaccinated is much larger than unvaccinated, and the numbers are are um, not fifty fifty. Uh, and yeah. as Dr. Jaff pointed out, it's the unvaccinated who are infecting the vaccinated.
2: You have to look at it by risk, right? Which is how many people are in that category. So if you take um, the the risk in unvaccinated is something like eight or nine times the risk uh, in the vaccinated of being infected and of being hospitalized or dying at something like 20 or 30 times. Uh, So it, it still means that what we really have to emphasize is to get anyone that you know that's not vaccinated or only has a single dose, reach out to them you know buy them a beer or cajole them or whatever is needed to say get vaccinated it's the single best thing that they can do for their own health and to protect others
1: right but at this point i would say that those who haven't probably won't um so uh just before we wrap things up here um ashley i mean you're coming from the uk just what's your impression about how we are handling things compared to the uk they just they're just coming off a huge spike i think. Well, there certainly
3: are. Um, and I do concur with uh, Dr. Jha's sentiment that these travel restrictions and these travel bans invariably do very little um, to control the spread of the virus. I mean, what governments are trying to do effectively using travel bans is buy time, right? That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to buy a bit of time so they can figure out what to do next. And we know what we need to do. It's to ramp up and and, you know, an effective testing program that is
1: complemented with
3: increasing the rates of vaccination.
1: Dr. Prabhatjab, what, what's your view?
2: I fully agree. I think, you know, we've been seeing this teaching song for, or this, this testing song for right from the start. And I just do not understand why that's not been done. Other countries have been able to do so. And um, I don't know, is the distrust of people think, oh, they're going to abuse it at home. I think, yes, there'll be some of that, but there'll be a huge amount of benefit when you get most Canadians who I do trust would use the test intelligently and at, uh, in a way that decreases transmission. Uh, and that would help us. That's ultimately our goal is to make sure our ICUs and Hospitals aren't flooded uh, with uh, with really sick COVID patients, and the best way to do so is expand testing and vaccination.
1: And uh, are you expecting a spike around the holidays?
2: I, I don't. I'm, I'm careful of those projections uh, because, you you know, they're based on some past uh, data. We don't know yet um, about uh, the, how widespread Omicron is going to be. So I think we want to be cautious. Um uh, The concern should very much remain get the above 50 population across Canada vaccinated. That will really drop down our uh, ICU and hospitalization rates and getting full vaccines. There is an argument, uh, which is not as strong, but I think a fair one also, of introducing the third dose for particularly those adults that got vaccinated early, meaning they got January, February doses, let's say, and their uh, immunity might have waned over time. So I think those sensible strategies to try to boost the population uh, or boost the immunity in the above 50s are the single best thing we can do to make sure our hospitals aren't flooded. But the best strategy to decrease transmission overall is to take the testing uh, toolkit out of the toolbox. It's mostly unused and let's start using it seriously. I agree with Dr. Nunes. We just have not done a systematic testing strategy, and but this would be the time to do so.
1: Okay. Well, uh, we've been told it's going to happen. We'll wait and see. In the meantime, thank you so much, Dr. Prabhat Jha and Ashley Nunes. Thanks. Thanks very much. And that is all the time we have for today.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. New modeling shows COVID-19 cases are rising in most public health units due to the Delta variant. And testing has not increased, but positivity is rising. And that means it's a real rise in cases. At the end of November, the overall positivity rate in the province was 2.5%. But in some regions, it was well over 5%. And today, Ontario reported 928 new cases. That's an increase from a week ago and days ago, and more than half people not vaccinated. There's no surprise there. Uh, But here's the thing is that even without Omicron. ICU occupancy is predicted to grow to 250 to 400 beds in January, which would put hospitals under strain. And in the meantime, we've got these new travel rules and restrictions attended to keep the Omicron variant out. Uh, but they're confusing and a lot of people doubt they're going to be effective and a lot of people say they are unfair and the implementation uh, leaves something to be desired i uh, wonder what you think out there our audience for 163600740 toll free 1866740 seven forty, And let's bring in Ashley Nunes, Director for Competition Policy at the R Street Institute and a Research Fellow at Harvard Law School, and Dr. Prabhat Jha, Epidemiologist and Faculty Member at the Dalhousie School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Thanks so much and welcome. Hi. Hello. Hello. Okay, let us begin with Dr. Ja. So what do you make of these new modeling numbers? Uh, Is it uh, better than you expected, worse than you expected?
2: Well, I think we knew that uh, the Delta variant is causing uh, still increases, and we know that it's driven very much by the unvaccinated populations. Canada has done well overall. Uh, but we still have important pockets, particularly in people age 50 or over who have not got um, uh, the vaccine or the full doses of the, the vaccines. And it's in those populations that uh, that end up in in intensive care or in hospitals. So I think the main strategy has to continue to really try to expand vaccination to those populations and... Uh, we've got to try to. I, I think there's some reasonable limits uh, that they might re, uh, the public health authorities might uh, reimpose on, limiting the number of people who can crowd indoors, particularly as we come up to Christmas time. Uh, so I, I think those things will be needed, um, but we we have no choice really except to. Uh, stick with those strategies our testing strategy has been a real disappointment and i'm and i I do continue to think that that's still an area where we could do a lot more
1: well apparently we we have been told uh by Dr. Peter Yuni, who's on the science advisory table, that we're going to be doing a lot more with uh, rapid testing, because we have, you know, tens of thousands of them sitting around in warehouses. But Ashley Nunes, uh, you know, you are, I guess, planning to come back to Toronto shortly?
3: Well, I was just in Toronto. Um, and, uh, you know, as I've, as I think I argued in my piece, the 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 policy that has been uh, unveiled by the by ottawa i mean just makes absolutely no sense whatsoever Um, you know the goal of testing is to detect traces of the virus and the ability of a test to do that depends on how much viral load you actually have all else being equal the amount of virus you carry increases over time because you, you know, you, you effectively increase the, the level of infection. Under the current entry requirements into Canada, you need to show a negative PCR test to enter the country. If you are infected, that test will show a negative result if you got tested too close to the time that you were infected. For example, if today I walk in to get a PCR test, and I get infected along the way, my PCR test is going to show a negative result.
1: Yeah, but you're going to have to, the new, the new, the new rules, you're going to, uh, unless you're coming from the States, which you aren't, you're going to have to take another test either at the airport or they'll give you a test to take home, and you're going to have to isolate until you get the result of that test. What, what, what do you think of that rule?
3: And that will do very little to change the outcome, because if I get the test today and I test negative and I have been infected today and I fly to Canada tomorrow and I take the test upon arrival, there is a very high probability I will still test negative because the viral load has not had enough time to sort of reach the levels required to yield a positive result.
1: Dr. Ja. do you agree with that?
2: Oh, I think it's complicated. Uh, What what we know is that um, we have to try to emphasize vaccination. That's the most important goal. So among vaccinated travelers, even if they've been exposed and infected, their viral load will be certainly lower. So that means the testing strategies and all the things that we've thought about probably don't work as well. Dr. Nunes is right that it's more effective to test at what's called uh, exit from quarantine versus at entry. And I think you have to be sensible about what we know about the policies uh, or sensible about how little we know about the science behind the policies. So I personally think that Testing within 24 hours of departure uh, from coming into Canada for flights is reasonable. And then the strategy that I would favor is basically if you've tested uh, negative, then on landing, you could repeat the test. But, you know, the chances that you're going to pick up something are really low uh, if you had a negative test to start with and if you've been vaccinated. And then the strategy really should be to say, all right, then you can go home. And uh, seven days later, you should get a a, a rapid test done at home and sent that in. And I think there's a related strategy that we've really fallen short of is why the Canadian government is not sending the millions of kits that it has procured, sending rapid kits to every home and letting people use evidence, which I think they would, to say, all right, well, Either I have symptoms, or I've just come back from travel, or I potentially contact someone. I'm going to do a rapid test and act accordingly. Other countries have done it. The UK—they send you—they send a kit home. I think every week, um, and people use them uh, intelligently. And we've just not done it here, uh, and this creates this the sense that well, the only way we can keep ourselves safe. Is, which is absolutely not true, is to close the borders for travel for some countries. And that's just cosmetic. It doesn't have any impact on the pandemic.
1: Ashley, uh, have you been using rapid tests in the UK?
3: Well, I have not uh, used rapid tests in the United Kingdom. Um, I would echo Dr. Jha's sentiment. Firstly, that it is important to get vaccinated. If you look at Canadian government data, regarding the positivity rates amongst vaccinated versus unvaccinated travelers flying into Canada, the positivity rates are much, much lower, of course, for vaccinated individuals. Uh, Dr. Zha also raises the point about, uh, you know, sending out kits to individuals uh, so that they can test themselves down the road. And this is incredibly important because if you are going to adopt a multi-pronged testing strategy, if you want to have individuals be tested multiple times, the key to getting accurate data is spacing those tests out, which I think is what Dr. Jha- Dr. Jha is is alluding yeah. to. Yeah, very much so.
1: Okay, we've got to take a break. We will be back with more on this, on the testing strategy, on the new rules for travellers, which seem to be changing by the minute and which seem to be implemented in a, a really uh, wacky way in a lot of cases. But we're going to take a break. Before we go to break, 416 Toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And, and let me throw this out there to the... The audience would you be more comfortable with whatever holiday gathering you may or may not be doing if you could just have everybody take a rapid test beforehand we'll have that when we come back
0: you're listening to an exclusive podcast of fight back on zoomer radio heard weekdays from noon to one now fight back with libby's nimer on zoomer radio
1: Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday. Time for our crack strategy panel. The Toronto Board of Health has voted in favour of asking the federal government to decriminalise small amounts of illegal drugs in the city as public health officials try to combat the worsening opioid overdose crisis. How would that work? Meanwhile... America announced that it is not sending a diplomatic delegation to the upcoming Beijing Olympics. It's a bid to send a strong message on human rights abuses in China. Is that an effective way to do it? And should Ottawa follow suit? Just yesterday, our ambassador to China announced his resignation. Dominic Barton is widely credited with a major role in winning the release of the two Michael's but he's also been criticized for his pro-China stance. Conservative leader Erin O'Toole implored the Trudeau government to appoint a career diplomat rather than a crony. So... Let's begin there. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 740 740 And now I'd like to welcome Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Charles Souza, the former Minister of Finance for Ontario and MPP for Mississauga South. Hi, everyone. Hi, Lady. Hi, Hi Libby. Uh, So let's begin with John. Uh, did Aaron O'Toole strike the right note in what he said about making sure that the next ambassador is a diplomat? And uh, how do you think it went over?
4: Well, I'm sure it didn't go over well. I'm not sure the Prime Minister likes to have anybody dictate to him who he should be appointing in and, varying and, uh, and spots. And and I'm sure that uh, the same was when, when Stephen Harper was prime minister and the opposition would say to him, you know, make sure that your appointments are, are nonpartisan and are, are, you know, um, are in a certain sort of way. But I do think, though, under Stephen Harper, he did try to normalize, uh, the process of appointments. it when it comes to diplomats and others where, you know, you know setting up a committee. And I think, I think the prime minister, uh, Trudeau sort of certainly adopted that early on. Uh, in uh, and he did that with the Senate as well. So he tried to make sure that he took he took the partisanship away from from some of these appointments. But the China appointment, the China ambassador appointment, was a particularly sensitive one. And um, the current, you know, the current uh, uh, ambassador who's resigning uh, was a was obviously a crony, a, a friend, uh, uh, supporters of the prime minister. But he also had a lot of talent, and and, and certainly had some uh, some some diplomatic chops, if you will, that that probably made him into a, a pretty successful ambassador to, to China. Given the fact that he was credited for releasing the two Michaels, but you know, I do think that Aaron Tool's point, though, is to say, look. It, this relationship with China is very sensitive. You need somebody who actually knows diplomacy and has some level of diplomatic skills and connections uh, that can actually sort of navigate some of the some of the you know the, the, the dangers that is with China. So I think his point was well made. I'm not sure the prime minister will follow it, but I think it's, uh, it's something that he should take uh, you know should take to heart.
1: Karen, uh, is Canada kind of behind the eight ball again when it comes to China? Um, The U.S. is not sending diplomats to the Beijing Olympics. Uh, We don't know what we're doing. uh, And uh, we haven't even made a decision on whether Huawei can participate in 5G. Uh, So do we just look, you know, weak when it comes to China? I think there's no question we look weak when it comes to China because
5: even our allies don't want us to be at the table when they're talking about um, how to deal with the aggression from China because they see us as the weak link. And we are because we don't have a strategy for engaging with China. So, you know, to the extent that uh, Aaron O'Toole said we need to have someone who is, a, you know, more of a professional diplomat in the position of ambassador to China. You know, is really what he's saying is that we need a strategy for dealing with China because right now we've got complete paralysis. And, and to your point, haven't made a decision in which the rest of the world came, I'd say the rest of the world, you know, the UK, the US, Australia said, no, Huawei can't be in our 5G network. We still can't make a decision on that. And it's been years. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. You know, and the, and the fact that the two Michaels were held hostage, I think, speaks to the fact that we actually, we're not even a mill power anymore because China felt quite at ease Picking up uh, two of our citizens um, and holding them hostage for two years, well, and you know, even the way that it's playing out for uh, Canada Goose in China, how they've like basically shut down that company in China by uh, you know a couple tweets. And so it it, it's, it is it, it is urgent that Canada realize that our status, our international status, is on the decline, and that unless we take some strategic, forward thinking moves and actions, we are further at risk of being alienated.
1: Well, yeah. The only thing I would I would argue, Karen, is that you know the horses have already escaped. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's been a long time since we were actually a middle power. But uh, Charles Sousa, I mean, I think I think Karen has it right saying paralysis. So the two Michaels are out. You know, why haven't we made a decision on Huawei? And and what about? Our stand on the Olympics. I mean, there are people who say what the Biden government is doing is probably not that effective either.
6: Yeah, you know, this thing's been a a long time in the making. I mean, the relations between China and Canada um, have been ongoing since Pierre Trudeau started to reignite it. And then it slowly became more difficult because there's human rights issues and a bunch of other difficulties. And to Karen's point, and to John's point, we haven't been very effective because we haven 't been seen, we seem to be sucking and blowing at the same time, <laughs> yeah, China. Mm-hmm. so at home we make a big stink about the human rights violations, but then when we 're meeting diplomacy with chinese we 're saying, hey, we want to do business with you, we want to help and politics and sport, politics and entertainment you know they don 't mix, but the point is it 's politics and money, and all these in, all these initiatives come with a lot of money, and this is where we become a uh, we have these these conniptions about how to deal with China. Dominic Barton is an excellent choice for the ambassador when he was brought in. He's well-connected in China. He knew what he was up against, and he was able to to maneuver within uh, those arrangements successfully. But even under Harper, there were toxic uh, issues between China and foreign diplomacy around the world. And under Trudeau, he wants to be the nice guy. He wants to be loved by everybody, but he can't have it both ways. And we are being indecisive, and it's difficult. It's really difficult in terms of us moving forward, especially with our allies.
1: Well, Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, the other thing about appointing—you can appoint the best diplomat in the world, but if he doesn't have instructions to go do anything, he's not going to do anything. Well, I think Dominic had instructions. Well, Dominic did have.
6: He was there, and he did what he had to do. I mean. Uh, John McCallum, who was there previously, got himself into trouble because he spoke out of churn and uh, he made commitments that he couldn't have, shouldn't have made. But the, the question still becomes, what is retribution? What is the best form for us to ensure fairness and the rights of individuals are met and combat coercion and violations? And they rightly state the United States and Canada also have had abuse. Now, we've taken steps to try to correct them, and we're public about it. The issue with the Chinese is they 're very secretive as to how they proceed, mm-hmm. and the ulterior motives with Hawaii and so forth are still misunderstood and frankly maybe not misunderstood maybe it 's very clear, and we have to be very careful
1: uh, right uh, I mean you know to me the the only organization that 's taking a really principled stand. Is the Women's Tennis Association, yeah. Yeah. which has uh, withdrawn from extremely lucrative tournaments in China because of the, uh, what appears to be the the disappearance and uh, silencing of Peng Shui, who made public accusations against a top uh, former communist official saying he sexually assaulted her. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah.
5: It certainly puts the Olympic Committee in a bit of a bind. But, um, you know, I, I, we'll see how it all plays out, but it's sort of, it's hard to see how Canada could not follow the U.S. in having um, a diplomatic boycott. And, 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 and we should, just for no other reason that we need to reestablish our relationship with the U.S., because we have so many outstanding files that are being sidelined because we haven't, whether the United States doesn't feel that we support them or they don't feel that we, they need us, but nonetheless, here is a great opportunity And if we're going to pick a side, let's pick the side of the U.S. over the side of China. Quite frankly, I mean, the you?
4: problem is, is we never we never we never lead, right? But the, the problem yeah. is, Karen, and you're absolutely right yeah, as far as say, it's an easy it's an easy decision, and it's quite frankly, I'm not sure how effective it's going to be to have a diplomatic boycott versus because everybody's there to, to watch the, the 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 athletes, but but we always follow, and we don't even follow right away. Like you know, the prime minister is basically saying, well, we have to think about it yeah. and see what we're going to do." Well, what's there to think about?
6: Ah, uh, well, wait a minute, now, guys. I mean, Canada took a different measure when it came to Cuba, and we stood out. And we maintain strong relations with the United States, notwithstanding some of those difficulties. Uh, we took a very principled stance when it came to the war in Iran and Iraq. We did not join the United States when they expected us to do so, and we took a principled stance on that. Um, you know, was it wasn't the South African president at the time. Your enemies are not my enemies. That sort of thing. We're all in this together. Sometimes we're on different sides. On this issue, there's a there's there's a human rights violation, and China has to stand accountable to that. But then there's so many other people, so many innocent people, who are involved in these discussions and these relations between China and Canada and the United States. And that's just the regular people who are working, trying to make a living. And some of these, uh, some of these issues are much broader, much more difficult to manage. But Canada, they have not taken that, that principled stance. They, we haven't seen that, right? We haven't seen what we've seen historically. And well, that's the part that gives me more concern.
1: Uh, Karen brought up an interesting thing, saying we should, we should uh, follow the United States just to try to repair our relationship with them. I mean, uh, you know, I don't see a lot of evidence that Joe Biden thinks Canada is one of his most important allies. Uh, on yeah. the contrary. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, John, do you think that, that, you know, following them on this one would help us with them?
4: Well, and Charles makes a good point with respect to, you know, we don't blindly follow the U.S., and we should think on this one here. Uh, on China and, and what they did with the two Michaels and sp- specifically uh, you know it, it's there's a little bit of a difference here and, and I think that we need to be strong in the is that we've never had a compass uh, when it comes to when it comes to China and I think the Prime Minister kind of continually flails with, with, with China but I do think though that it's an interesting concept um, with respect to the U.S. I'm not sure anything we do is going to make anything better between Joe Biden and, and, and uh, Justin Trudeau there was an expectation intuitively we all thought oh, okay well Donald Trump's gone my Joe Biden's in. That's going to cause a bit more of a of a cozier relationship with, with Justin Trudeau, but we haven't seen that. We haven't seen that on the trade. We haven't seen that on any of the calls that the that the, that the president has made. That, that normally you would you would do a courtesy call to the prime minister of Canada, probably first one of the yeah. first calls you'd make in the past, and that hasn't happened on almost any major international files to date.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, uh, we seem to be maybe even uh, further behind the eight ball. Well, not, I think we have
4: to call no. them to say, "Hey, by the way, did you miss me on a call?" <laughs> 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 uh,
1: I mean, uh, Karen, what do you think? Is this just uh, you know turning from going from bad to worse? Well, I think, and it, I think so,
5: and because um, because we can't seem to make a decision on China, like to Charles's point, we want it both ways, and you can't have it both ways. Sometimes you just have to make a decision. And um, on this one, you know, I I don't see why Canada would want to send any diplomatic uh, representation to China. Because we are completely aligned with the U.S. in terms of holding China to account on their human rights abuses, on uh, the way that they are actually um, asserting their dominance in in ways that are, are potentially globally destabilizing. We've got, you know, we should align ourselves with the Huawei decision. and. Again, we we just have to we, we have to pick a side, and it's not it's not that China is our enemy. I wouldn't want to use those that kind of language, but our interests around China are more aligned with the U.S. than they ever have been with respect to how we deal with a superpower, and and we have to start standing up and demonstrating that because the world right now doesn't know where cannabis is. They don't because we have... Canada to know doesn't where know sit. where Canada, Canada sits. Canada doesn't know where it sits. So we need to start making some of those decisions.
1: Yeah, I mean... <laughs> sure it, to say, I don't... Like,
5: and he apologized to everybody under the sun for everything. Like, surely to God, he could stand up for human rights abuses in China.
1: Well, yeah, and they, I mean... You know, uh, I don't even know what what to say on this. But on the other hand, does anyone care if the diplomats don't go? I mean, the Chinese have said that the U.S. will pay for this insult. But I don't know, does anybody care if diplomats aren't in the stands? Right. No, but I think the U.S. cares. Like, they want to be supported in this one, I would imagine.
4: Yeah, but I think you know, and I'm not surprised that China came out so quickly after the U.S. did that. This sort of, because I think they want to sort of prevent other countries from from trying to do it, or at least maybe intimidate them from saying, well, you know, we're gonna we're gonna you know pay the price. You're gonna have to pay the price as well. So I think there was some level of of, of you know politics there in doing that. But but quite frankly, though, and and it's it's not going to be. It's a symbol. It's a symbolic boycott more than anything else the, the true boycott would be that can prevent any of your athletes to go that would be a true boycott as we've seen in the past happen but you know this is a symbolic one at least it's a gesture that shows that that you know and it's got china mad and that that in and of itself might be what the u.s wanted to do but um more than that i think people are still going to end up watching the olympics because the athletes are there
1: okay let's take a call from nick and markham hi nick
0: hi there
1: uh we talk about human
4: rights the chinese abusing uh, certain groups in their nation what about how many countries in the United States was bombed since 2001? It's like, what, 15? How many murders in the States every day? And you talk about human rights in China. China's surrounded by U.S. bases. In Guam, in Hawaii, all over the place. Australia. And you squawk about the Chinese. Well, you made them what they are. You're the ones who wanted all these free trade deals and gave them the technology and the know-how on how to build things, and you go, allow corporations to go there because they don't have to pay any wages or deal with any environmental issues or anything like that.
1: I'm, I'm not sure that all those things are, are still accurate, but I think I get your drift, Nick. Thanks for your call. Uh, what do you say to Nick, Charles?
6: Yeah, I think Nick is he makes a good point. I mean, all countries... Um, have had violations and human rights issues. Canada is undergoing some right now. I mean, uh, and and, Trudeau is apologizing for everything, as Karen mentioned. The United States has also had a long history of aggression. And so China is stepping up. But the point is we are holding ourselves accountable. We are acknowledging. The Vatican is doing their part, even with with the religious movements and so forth that we've had over the years. But China has stood more silent and more inward, notwithstanding they also acknowledge the shortcomings. But what are they doing about? We don't know, because they're not as open and as and as transparent about it. But those human rights issues with yogurt, uh, the Uyghur and the uh, and the Muslim community, it's shameful. And that they should just do away with those camps. But we have camps. We have all kinds of stuff so in Africa and in throughout Europe. We have immigration policies that are also repressive in certain aspects for refugees. So he's right. We are not But China's not the only one to blame. All of us share in this blame. And the United States and Canada, we're the largest trading partners amongst us. But really, what leverage does Canada have right now? We're not being listened to by the United States. We're being dismissed by China. The only thing we have is to try to promote some leverage between the two. And I think that's probably the dilemma that uh, they're in right now is how can they best use that lever? I don't think it's being successful. But I think the caller's point is accurate.
1: Okay, uh, let's move on. You were mentioning uh, uh, restrictions and rules. So uh, how do you think the government is doing with the latest round of travel restrictions? They uh, banned flights from uh, six countries in in Africa, and that's come under fire saying it's it's discriminatory and just because a very good South African lab found the variant and shared it doesn 't mean that it originated there um, and there's been a lot of talk about uh, vaccine nationalism about how we 're not going to be protected from variants until the world is vaccinated so and and also some some really bad rules, uh, you know, in terms of people coming back and they're being applied in a pathetic way. So uh, is the government kind of taking a beating on this, Karen? I think so.
5: I think so. And I was, you know, I was one of the ones who thought, well, if we can, until we get a better handle on this variant, it it does make sense to restrict travelers coming from those areas to Canada. I I was on board with that. I I saw the logic in that. Um, But as it started to appear in Europe and in the U.S. and even in Canada... Now it's not really a matter of how we deal with particular flights, it's it's how we deal with incoming travelers. And some of the things that we're reading are really quite outrageous. To to be holed up in a hotel without food when you have a negative test and you still can't leave is, is, is beyond anything that's making sense.
1: And And I don't don't know how it's taken them. I think I've mentioned my husband came back from Europe the very first week that vaccinated people were allowed to uh, come back and take a test at home and and not quarantine. And he kept getting notice that he should be in quarantine and he's going to be, you know, fined. And even though he clearly did not have to be. And I keep hearing this from people that they meet the requirements and and the app is all or the people so supposedly monitoring just can't seem to have a handle on that which is just a, a bit i guess um disappointing given that we've had two
5: years of trying to figure this out right like it, it it's not as if we're trying to build it on the fly like it should have already we should have already yeah. had an, a system in place whereby if a variant occurs how are we going to deal with it from an incoming travel point of view like that that's something that we could have anticipated
1: i would have thought uh charles
6: yeah i mean we're just being reactive we constantly yeah. are and i mean there's lack of information there's no real understanding of this new variant and uh and we have been inconsistent in our messaging to travelers i mean on the one hand you think you have under you under have you have it figured out when you get here and next thing you know they've changed their mind on a dime and but that's because these things are changing quickly as well. Um, but I, um, I, 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 I think with Karen on this one, after all this time, we should have some form of a system in place by which this is what happens when these things occur. And uh, But uh, what, the, what also bothers me is the abuse by some of these hotels and others, charging astronomical amounts for these travelers who, have, who are being held hostage in some respects because of inconsistent... Information.
1: Um, well, yes, and and you'd think that the government. I mean, it's 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 just a matter of glitches. They're not able to keep track of negative tests. I mean, they they should know if they didn't have enough people to clear them or uh, however it was. I mean, these are problems that have existed since the thing started. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Are 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 any of you planning to travel over the holidays? I'm just curious. No.
6: Nope. No, I have my kids coming home though, oh. and they're asking lots of questions themselves. Where are they they're, coming they're, from? They're trying to figure out what does it mean when they get here, and they've been away for a while. So yeah,
1: where, uh, where are they coming from?
6: One's coming from Ireland, and he travels a bit because of his work. So he goes to and from the UK and Italy and Europe. And my daughter's coming in from New York, um, but yeah, uh, we'll see. We'll see how they 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 what what, what they face at the airport. When I traveled. About a month or so ago, and I went to Florida because there's no COVID there, and uh, <laughs> like nobody talks about it. But when I came back, if I was going to catch it, it would be at the airport. I was being cattled through lineups, and it was congested, and we were uh, we were waiting throughout the system. So the I thought, this
4: stood this Still,
6: I mean, way. we're all vaccinated. We all had <laughs> negative tests. But obviously, this new variant has is, is causing concern in those airports, especially.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I, I think that we hit the sweet spot when, with this little trip to New York because the airport was better than it was in August when we traveled to, to B.C., and uh, everything was relatively, and I, I emphasize, relatively smooth. True, yeah. now.
4: Well, and that's that's probably sort of not, you know more just uh, a, a isolated nice situation than it uh, is a room, I think, quite frankly. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's just uh, you know, and but, and we're hearing about these shortages because of supply chain issues. You know, everything from Christmas gifts to Christmas trees to to turkeys. Yeah,
5: yeah. I, I have would, to say I don't maybe, understand I the
1: Christmas tree issue because those trees were planted ten years ago. So <laughs> I don't
5: understand. There was no shortage ten years ago. So why are we feeling this? Why are we feeling it now? You
1: you ask a very good question, and and my husband bought his Christmas tree or our Christmas tree, and it it costs like he he always buys expensive ones, and it, and it's like even more expensive. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't understand Everybody seems that. to want a
4: real one this time around. I went to a store the other day, next door to a nursery, at uh, like a sort of a, a florist nursery place, and and the lineup for people getting trees was incredible. Like, I think it's just you know maybe because they were able to enjoy Christmas this time yeah, with no family problem, more than maybe. they were last time.
6: You guys are all worrying me. We're waiting for my daughter to come home to pick up our tree
1: do no, oh, you it one. Could be sold out. It could run on trees. Uh, yeah, the, the place he bought it said they expect to run out by December fourteenth.
4: Oh, it, it, I think the store that I was at yesterday that, that that I saw people coming in. I think there were only small ones left, Charles. So you might.
1: Want <laughs> <laughs> we'll put it on a stand. I, I clear your afternoon schedule. <laughs> uh, yeah, and and what about turkeys? I'm I'm finding that also a little hard to believe. Well, the yes. price of them, or the or the uh <laughs> availability.
5: Yeah.
1: Because they're local, they're Ontario turkeys, aren't they? Exactly. I don't know. Did we ship
5: turkeys in from somewhere else. I, this is—I don't know. I don't. I don't have a big enough family to actually cook a
1: turkey, so it won't. Doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> we could split one. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so uh, we have a few more minutes before we wrap things up. Uh, you know. Um, What does this mean, kind of going forward? You know, we're going to be in pretty heavy duty electioneering provincially by the time we're back from the holidays. So, does uh, it seems like this thing is never ending? Is there going to be a price just because of that?
4: I, Libby, I would say that you know, with twenty twenty. 2022 coming around the corner in election year as you mentioned i think it's going to be highly political and, and the pandemic no matter how you see it you know i think politicians are going to be judged by it and how they're how they're uh, how they're handling it i think that you know i think when they in the case of Doug ford i think he's been i think people are generally seeing that he's handling it well and and being cautious they just they put a freeze on any further restriction removal of restrictions uh uh announcement just came up now because of this new new variant so i think that's that's safe and cautious and i think that's what's going to probably lead into into 2022 going into the election in june uh charles do
1: you agree
6: yeah i mean the pandemic is going to be a continuing issue for for them in this election we'll see how it gets resolved the whole notion with the highway and, and and you know supporting his friends will still be an issue. Um, I tell you, though, I like what they're doing with long term care and uh, and health. I mean, they're they're following up on some programs that we had put forward, and they've they've enhanced them, which is a positive thing. But we didn't even talk about the opioid crisis and the health issues. Those are going to be a matter for him to concern with. And and the fact that they're being recommended to go decriminalize on some of these things is a good thing. It's a good thing to do. It's worked well in Portugal 20 years ago. Yeah. We've held to a high standard. You mean, drug use went down. um, uh, The treatments went up. uh, Crime went down tremendously because they weren't now breaking and entering into other things. But if we can reorient our policy and provide health-led approaches to treatment as well as decriminalization. That whole stigma falls away, and, and there's a positive outcome, and it happened in Europe, or at least in Portugal, and they're held to a standard to, for that effect. I think if if the government were to enhance and embrace some of these measures, that would show them as being caring and really concerning about not only the economy but people's livelihood.
1: Uh, isn't I'm just before we go, but isn't that up to the federal government to agree to that decriminalization? I mean, where what what role does the province have to play in it?
6: They can recommend it. <laughs> yeah, they can recommend. They can sort of, say, but but it's true. I mean, uh, I mean, and I think, the, I mean, the, the recommendation has been made. I think the federal government will embrace it, but the province should really take it on and lead it because they have to implement it, and they should fight for it.
1: Okay, well, that's interesting, and thank you for that. And that's all the time we have for this segment. So, thanks so much, Charles Souza, John Capobianco, and Karen Stints. Yeah, well, all the best. Bye. We'll uh, talk again soon. And we are going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about those travel restrictions, how they're playing out, and also the latest modeling that just came out in the last hour when we return.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio.